0: Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and thanks for joining us as we shine a spotlight on Stages. With over 230 episodes in the Stages archive, it's time to revisit conversations featured in previous seasons. Stages spotlight such episodes in case you missed them the first time round, or so you can simply savour a second listen. Either way, you'll be accessing precious oral histories from the people who were there, on and around our stages. John Frost was featured in a two-part conversation for Stages in Season 3 of the podcast. The episodes have garnered much attention and awe for John's candid insight into a life in the theatre. They are required listening for anyone fascinated by this business we call show. Known affectionately as Frosty the Showman, the impresario Frost has been at the pinnacle of musical theatre in Australia for several decades. The Gordon Frost organisation has contributed much of the commercial product that has traversed stages around the country. His productions have garnered a swag of local awards as well as two Tony Awards on the Broadway stage. He left school at 15 and began his career as a dresser on the J.C. Williamson's production of Mame. Frost had found what he wanted to do, And the young apprentice garnered enormous knowledge, working his way through a succession of roles. Wardrobe master, office assistant to Ken Brodziak, stage manager, company manager and agent. Each experience informing his prized accomplishment as producer. It's a riveting story and John speaks frankly and with great wit about his journey and what is involved in being Frosty the showman. Where did this come from?
1: They are, I got them at an auction. Because I've I, seen them before. Yeah, and they, I've never had them. and I bought them at auction recently. And I was going to, because I've got a farm now, I'm going to build this big pavilion at the farm where people like Geraldine Turner can go and sing a few old songs now and then up in the uh, southern highlands. And they'll be the entrance to the door. Because people, a lot of people will find them offensive, and that's really why I wanted them. So that they would be at the beginning as you walk into this big pavilion. So, they light up, too. So
0: I've seen them somewhere before. Was it at Hotel I, Foyer or no, no, no? They were, they were on the set of Phantom of the Opera. No,
1: they were. They're not props. They're real. They were. I bought them from this
0: deceased estate right. in Chatswood, I think it was. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. They're only about three hundred dollars each. That pavilion's a great idea, I guess. Mm. It's a bit like that. Um, uh was it diane Salento who built a yeah, theater yeah, yeah, in yeah. the rainforest yeah yeah,
1: oh, yeah 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 so um, that's sort of fantasy and then i can put all my theater things up there all my posters all my uh, set models all my you know ball gowns from my fair lady and stuff like and king and i
0: because you're in the southern highlands people hmm? could do the don bradman museum that's right yeah it'll and be, then the john frost it'll museum.
1: be the frosty pavilion
0: yeah <laughs> when when did you first lay eyes on a producer I
1: I can't really remember. I think it, look, I think it might have been during uh, Canterbury Tales, which was the late 60s, and they wore grey suits.
0: Were you working on the production? Yeah, I was working on the production.
1: I was a dresser, and I dressed Johnny Lockwood, the leading man, in Canterbury Tales at the old, old Theatre Royal. That's no longer there. Not the one that's there, but it's closed up. But and these two men came backstage and they were in grey suits and one was a man called Paul Rianfalvi and the other one was called Eric Duckworth who was also, yes, he was a producer. And they were the co-producers of Canterbury Tales along with, uh, I think, Ken Brozniak of Aztec Services and JC Williamson's. And I remember seeing them go into the Star's dressing room, Johnny Lockwood's dressing room. And I often wondered what they were. But I remember sort of further back when I worked, when I was like 15 or 16, when I worked for JC Williamson's, when they came backstage, I don't know who they were, uh, to see Gay Lee Byrne, who was the star of the JC Williamson production of May. And I often wondered what well, that sort of looked like insurance brokers now, if I think about it. And then I just dismissed it.
0: And then, you know, yeah,
1: that's probably when the first time I saw it.
0: Was there was there any um, attraction thinking that that's my no I think I, I, I think I then day?
1: then evolved over a period of time that oh that's what they do they're they're the bosses because my boss in those days particularly on Maine, was people like Sue who is who was the stage company company manager stage manager uh, a man called Frank Howes and a lady called Pauline Smithson who was the ASM I think. On that show, so you know, I was I was a dresser on Mame. This is in '68, I think. I think it was '68 in Adelaide, and so that, that they that i they were the people that sort of scared me. They were the my direct bosses, I suppose. And then eventually, I saw these people in grey suits thinking, "Well, who are they then? If these are my bosses, who are they? well, they were the producers. They were the you know the head honchos, and then." As as my career went on in those early, early days, I decided this is what I want to do. I want to be in the theater, but I knew I wasn't a performer and I knew I couldn't pull a rope all my life and I knew I couldn't do a quick change all my life. So what do you do? And being ambitious and I thought, I want to be one of those people in the gray suit. And then as you get smarter and wiser, you go through life and you go, I can do it better than them. I could, why would they want to do that show they should be doing that show but that's naive that's me being a very young naive person in the business wanting thinking i could do better of course i couldn't have done better in those days because i didn't Good. have the experience behind me or the, the knowledge. knowledge the resources mm, exactly yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. but that was i put that down to driven ambition you know sort of, i could do that
0: We'll talk about your, the pathway of your career uh, shortly. Mm. Let's rewind now back to you're born in Adelaide. Born in Adelaide, 1952.
1: Mm. That makes me very old. Wise man of the theatre. Wise man of the theatre, mm. yeah. veteran, as they say.
0: Um, and um, did you have a, a, a favorite composer or composing team growing up?
1: No, I think. Look, the, the last. The, I think <clears throat> if we're getting to you know what made you do it. What made you jump into the business? I think I was influenced strongly by, certainly by the glorious black and white television in the 60s, um, by shows like In Melbourne Tonight with Graham Kennedy, um, shows like The Mavis Brampton Show, I think, uh, so this so is a, variety sort of like It's all that variety thing, yep. yeah. And if you look at an old movie called The Jolson Story yep. about Al Jolson. With uh, Mr Parks. Larry Parks. Yep um you you can um that that was like my favorite favorite ever film and then i i discovered um you know the pictures the adelaide pictures so you you know i got a job as a lolly boy a tray boy on a little movie called the sound of music in 70 millimeter at the regent theater or the paris theater in adelaide i can't remember and i was a lolly boy there for that and so I'd see Julie Andrews run up that mountain four times a day, or you know, because you're in the auditorium. Actually I was in the auditorium suites. waiting, yeah, holding. You know, the house lights that go down, so I'd, just before I'd leave, I'd see her run up that hill.
0: Were you able to stay for the film, or you had to go?
1: out Oh no, I'd make sure. I, no, I had to go down and drop it there. But I saw lots of lot in and out of the film all the time. Yeah. And of course, Mary Poppins. At the same time, I didn't work on Mary Poppins, but I wagged school several times to go to the Metro Theatre in Adelaide to see Julie Andrews do Mary Poppins.
0: So you grew up in a a rough and ready housing estate. Yeah. Ferridan Park. Ferridan Park, yeah. That's that's north of Adelaide. Yes. Was that a sort of pretty rough, tough existence as a child?
1: No, it wasn't because though I had great parents and I had great brothers and sisters and it was... My dad was a a, a wharfie, a waterside worker, and mum cleaned offices. So we didn't have a lot, but what we had was, I think, a loving family and, I think, a pretty balanced upbringing. You know, there was never any really, you know, massive arguments. Tell me about your Aunt Mary. And my Aunt Mary, who had a, a, a major stutter... (laughs) And uh, I, as a young, I must have been like nine, I think. And I had my mother, I'm jutting all over the place, but it'll get to somebody. My mother and my brother's fiance, Margaret, decided to go to Melbourne to see My Fair Lady. And that was the big thing in Adelaide is, you know, we're getting the Pioneer bus to Melbourne and we've got tickets to see My Fair Lady. And they went and saw Bunty Turner and Robin Bailey. And they came back and they bought a program back, a silver program, which was the souvenir program. And I looked at it and looked at it and I was transfixed about it. And all I could remember is Margaret and my mother talking about how beautiful it was and how glamorous it was and that how lucky they were. And I thought, oh my God, I wish I was, I w- And I didn't have any concept then of a a show on the stage anyway because I'd never been to the live theatre. And I just thought there was something about it that was really exciting. And I opened this program and saw the Ascot scene. And and I remember watching television one night and there was a a TV program called Review 61 or 62 compared by Digby Wolfe. And I remember vividly the company doing, with Robin Bailey, Bunty Turner and Kenneth Laird doing um, I could have not, I could have danced all night. Sounds like rain in Spain in black and white, glorious black and white. And I've been trawling wherever I can to try and find that clip, but it doesn't seem to exist. It must've been wiped, but it was all a part of, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding, I'm going in circles, but, but it, it was all a part of the glamour that was luring me to be a part of it. Now I didn't know how to be a part of it or what part of it meant anyway so it wasn't really until i fell in love with doing you know working in the cinemas then doing my own backyard shows and we we'd do scenes from my fair lady so it was all that
0: mickey rooney judy garland stuff. totally Let's and my auntie show. played
1: eliza Doolittle, little i played henry higgins and we'd mime or sing along with the with the julie andrews album because the movie wasn't out in those days that was a prized possession,
0: wasn't it? Every,
1: well, that's right. Every yeah. household wanted every, a copy of the wanted LP. that. Yeah, you usually had that South Pacific, the movie with Mitzi Gaynor, and maybe Oklahoma. Um, but I had that and Mary Poppins because I discovered Julie Andrews. You see, and then eventually Sound of Music. But but um, so we'd do these backyard shows, and I'd sell tickets. You know, for I don't know five five sixpence to come and see me do an Al Jolson imitation. With um, shoe polish on my face, doing blackface um, when like, it was how easily did that come off? It didn't. It burnt your skin, took right. layers of skin off. Right. So it was like a derma blast, It was hideous, <laughs> and it wouldn't come off. It was just like—that's you know, why your skin is so beautiful. That's right. And soft exactly. Today. Just took layers <laughs> off. It. Anyway, so so, and they, those were the days when no one ever thought about it. you. Could never do it now. God, you wouldn't. But. But, um, yeah, so I'd do, you know, I'd sing Mammy and Swanny, to Larry Parks's Al Jolson awesome. imitation. So, you know, I'd do all that. Were
0: you able to get to live performance much? You talk about cinema. No, I hadn't
1: been to. I hadn't seen any live because show. Because it's a glorious uh, yeah. Her Majesty's Theatre. Yeah, well, I didn't even yeah. know Her Majesty's
0: Theatre existed. When did you discover that? I
1: only discovered it because every Saturday afternoon I'd go to the sort of the local cinema, and it was a cinema in Adelaide called the Piccadilly Theatre in North Adelaide. And I'd go there, and my, I remember my mum giving me, I think we had 20 cents. So you'd have 5 cents for the bus. You'd have 10 cents for um, ice cream. get-in to buy the ticket. Yeah. Maybe she gave me more. Maybe it was 50 cents or 40 cents. And then you'd buy a choo-choo bar as your lolly. Licorice. Licorice thing. Mm. Yeah, tough black choo-choo bar. Mm. And that was your lolly. And you'd go and see the double feature, which would be a Tarzan movie, or it'd be some beach blanket bingo or something. I don't know. I can't remember vividly, but, but so you'd see two movies for like 15 cents. And then they'd have competitions up there where I'd go in for the competitions if you knew the answers and you'd win a free ticket for next week or something like that. They'd do that before the show started on the stage. So did that. And then, you know, I'd go into those sort of competitions that they'd do on kids' shows in the afternoon, the the program called the Channel Niners, and you'd go in there and you'd spin the barrel and you'd win, I don't know, what a fluffy doll of Humphrey Bear, I suppose. Mm. But um, all of that still hadn't discovered live theatre. And then one Saturday afternoon, for whatever reason, I'm on the bus going to the movies, right? And I must have been thinking about something and it went past the bus stop. And I ended up in town, in the city, which was it Was probably about three stops forward. So I thought, oh, I won't go to the movies. I'll wander around city, the city. So Adelaide on a Saturday afternoon was like no one was ever there. This mm. is the late 60s. It was like no one. So for whatever reason, I walked right down. I came to Grote Street in Adelaide, where Her Majesty's Theatre was. And I walked past the theatre. Not even conscious that it was a... Th- yeah, I think I, well, I probably was conscious that it was a cinema. But it wasn't a cinema, it was a live theatre. And there was a musical on there called The Great Waltz playing. And as I walked past the doors, I turned and looked inside the theatre foyer and they had just opened the doors for Interval. So I saw, heard all this music, this wonderful Strauss music, and I could see these people all standing in lights which was obviously the stage and the curtain was coming down and that was it it just i went what is this what is, that was a major turning point so the following saturday i deliberately not go to the pictures and i go and i used to stand outside and mingle with the people at interval i wouldn't go in because there was of no seats and that was you know i was a good boy you, I weren't, was. you weren't a second actor no i wasn't a second okay. actor i've done that before though but 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 I uh, was just transfixed, and I just wanted to be with this audience. So anyway, eventually, you know, I went to the box office, and they said, oh, I think the cheapest ticket was probably $1. twenty-five for the up in the back of the dress circle. And so I bought a ticket. I saved my money, and I bought a ticket, and I went and saw The Great Waltz, and that was the first stage musical I'd ever seen in my life. And that was the JC Williamson musical. So that was about 66. And by then... Then I thought I had to go and see everything else. And after that, that followed was, I think, Barry Humphreys came in with, with one of his one-man shows. Humour went right over my head, but it was live. The next thing was Joyce Grenfell, live, which was a, what, what I remember vividly was extraordinary from her one-woman show. Then a show came to town called Funny Girl, the star Jill Perryman, and I saw that, and I went back and I saw that about five times and I got to the point where I wrote a fan letter to Jill Perryman just saying whatever I said and she sent me an autographed photo and a letter which I still have, it's framed somewhere but it's at home Um, and of course many years later she's a friend and she's worked for me on several occasions in shows and that and then the next show to come in after that uh, was Tony Lamond in Oliver when she played Nancy not long after her husband committed suicide, Frank Sheldon so I saw her do that. And then I saw Sweet Charity with Nancy Hayes. And again, saw it four or five times. Um, wrote her a fan letter, got a photograph back, a little letter, which I've still got. And again, of course, I worked with Nancy on a few occasions.
0: And, and these women are the start of our musical theatre in to- Australia, totally. they? Totally, they're, they're the gods. The they're, Australian they are the, stars.
1: Without a doubt, without a doubt. They're, that when, you know, we managed to keep those women up there and keep them employed and they'd go from one big musical to the next um and they were you know i think now the last of that breed really which is sad but uh they were true stars when they were you know they they jc williamson's told them how they had to dress and how they had to present themselves and all of that that was wonderful um so that's how i started off and then
0: So did you have a a with performance? Did you get involved with any community theatre? Oh, I did. Yeah, I did, actually.
1: I got a job. I I was asked to do... audition for a production of Showboat in Adelaide for the Mayfair Light Opera Company. Yes. That played the Arts Theatre in Adelaide, Nanga Street, Adelaide. And I was in the uh, ensemble for that. And I used to... We did about, I don't know, ten performances... And I was sort of shoved in the background and that and played a couple of different roles in show, but not principal roles, ensemble roles. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I think I did, but not enough until the director came up to me and he said when we, they went to audition for the next show, he said, John, we've decided we don't think you should be a performer. We think you could be what we call an assistant stage manager. So basically I didn't have it as a performer. I thought
0: I did. Oh, I thought I, what you were going to say you were wearing too much makeup. No, no, no. That's
1: been a few other people I've known in my life. That happened to
0: you, didn't it? Yes, I know. <laughs> right. First
1: preview of an ideal husband. That's
0: right. Yeah. Um, Why is he wearing so much makeup? Is that, did the producer say that to you? The producer ferried John Fro-
1: that. Back. Not that John Frost said John that. John Frost it. said, "Did that. he, he? ferried
0: it back through the uh, through David Lynch?" Oh, is that
1: right? Mm. The assistant director, associate director. But
0: that's good. You've got, you've got your eye on the pulse with every corner of a show.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, it, well, you know, I went through. I was a flyman for a while. I was wardrobe. Were your parents happy about a career in the arts? Well, when when I decided to, I, I got a job. Uh, as a dresser, the first grown-up professional job at Her Majesty's Theatre was on a musical called Maine.
0: With Gailey Byrne. With
1: Gailey Byrne. And Mary, Mary Hardy. Mary Hardy, actually. Sheila Bradley, man called Jeff Hiscock, Mary Ann Saverne, it goes on. Yvonne Matthew goes on and on and on. Uh, John Frawley, oh God, Keith Lee. Anyway, lots of lots of really good Australian actors. And Gailey Byrne was an American import. Anyway, to cut a long story short, um, The, um, we, I got a job on that and it was about to go to Perth and the show, I tried to get, I wasn't good at school academically. I wasn't very good. Well, I didn't think I was very good. Well, it just didn't interest me. Um, and so I went to my parents and I said, look, the show's closing. I'm earning good money. I'm earning $35 a week as a dresser. God, I could tell you now what a dresser earns. I wouldn't mind doing that job now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I was earning $35 a week as a dresser and eight shows a week. And um, i asked the stage manager, Sue Natras, if I could go to Perth and she said, I would give you a job over there, but you've got to get yourself there. That was you know, generally the
0: way, wasn't it, with the firm? Did the cast have to make their way to various No, 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 cities? that was all paid. All it was all paid, paid. They, yeah, right.
1: yeah, yeah. And they were all on, everybody was on living away in those days. Uh, well, in my the days when I was there, they were. Um, but, you know, the pediums weren't what they are now. And, you know, you went by train everywhere, so which was great fun. Mm. Instead, No one ever flew other than probably the stage manager or the head or, or the technical manager, because they had to get over there before the set got there. So the cast would always go by train or they make their own way there if they wanted to and got an allowance. But, so I asked my parents about, uh, I wanted to leave school and go. So they said, whatever makes you happy, makes us happy. And I remember that vividly. And I thought, God, I'm lucky. So. I get it. They come and see me off at the train station, Adelaide train station with the whole company. And you know, all these glamorous girls getting on the train, all dressed up in their nines, which again, and all the boys very respectively dressed. And so I'm with a company of 35 and me. And anyway, in those days, you know, you all had sleepers in the, each of the compartments scene so, so so that, Funny Girl. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, Totally. Uh, except I didn't sing Don't Rain On My Parade <laughs> at the train station. Um, and halfway across, not even halfway across, a third of the way there, it was about two o'clock in the morning, and the, the main company had taken over the dining cart or the, the sort of lounge, uh, cart that there was the dining room, and then there was another cart which was sort of like a big lounge room with a piano in it. So every show tune was always played by, you know, maybe the assistant musical director or whatever, and the ensemble would get up there and sing every show, tune, talk about theater. And it was like, for me, dying, going to heaven. It was yeah. like, there is this- You've you found your tribe. Totally, yeah. these there's 35 misfits. And I all believe that any of us in this business are misfits, I don't care what you do in it. We are all a bit odd for doing it. Mm. Um, and it is the circus life, as you said earlier. Um, fell in love and at two o'clock in the morning, there's a knock at the door. Now I'm 15, right? I think I was about to turn 16 A knock at the door and it was the conductor. He said, your name, John Frost. And I said, yes. They said, your father's just died. You have to get off the train. Well, other than going into shock. Now my dad was about 65.
0: Didn't take you out of the room or anything? No, no, I
1: was in bed. Right, right. It was about two in the morning, yeah, yeah. So it was about two in the morning. I was in bed. And they, not, and they said, we can't stop the train, but there is another freight train coming the other way. We will slow down and you. we will throw your bags onto the freight train. And you'll have to jump as the trains crossed each other, but they'd go very slow. So I had to jump from one train going west and the other one going back to Adelaide. So I jumped into a freight cart, that's, just a wooden freight cart. It's devastating.
0: Yeah. But it's a great scene for the biopic. It is, isn't it? It is,
1: <laughs> it is, it is. Huckleberry Finn. Uh, and all there was there, and I remember it vividly, was just bales of wheat and straw. So I slept. Now, remember I'm the age I was, 15, not terribly worldly. Um, and I sort of, I was in shock, right? I was in shock. I must have been. And so I slept, or thought I slept, all the way back to Adelaide picked up at the train station by my brother, I think my older brother, and then stayed two days, they had the Heather funeral, which was awful, um, and then I had no money left. Well, what money I had left was probably, I don't know, $15? So my mother was in this. you know, it was like, all I wanted to do was get out of Adelaide. I just wanted to run away. From all the grief. From all the grief, yeah. which, you know, we all know now, You get a counsellor. Like, thing to do. No, no, it's not the best thing to do. So I caught a bus, found out... No, I had $15, that's right. And I think there was a child's fair. So I lied about my age, said I was 12. Big, tall... I was very big for 12. And I got a kid's fair across the Nullarbor, right? On <laughs> Pioneer buses. And that was a treat. That was... Oh, my God. I remember... And now my eating habits were very odd. You know, I wouldn't... The thought of eating bacon and eggs was hostile to me. So it was very... Brought up very plain food, you know. Vegemite steak, veg toast. Ve- vege- Vegemite and toast. Mm. Coon cheese and toast sort of thing. You know, it was like very, very plain. So I remember getting to this one city I hadn't eaten for... And I think the trip was about three days or something. Getting there and she said, do you want eggs on toast, bacon and eggs whatever whatever and the really rough woman at this sort of roadhouse I said no I'll just have a cheese sandwich please so I remember vividly having a white bread craft cheese sandwich was sort of all the food I had and I remember then eventually getting to Perth and the show had opened but they kept my job open for me or the show had previewed I I okay maybe we didn't even do a preview um or it was delayed, I think, because a piece of scenery fell out of the air and hurt two dancers in one of the scenes or mm. something. It was, this was at the old His Majesty's Theatre. Right, right. um, and so I rejoined that show and we stayed at the um, His Majesty's Hotel, that oh, used to yes, be a hotel, was a joint. Which, was, yeah, which was fantastic in mm. those days, because you could stay there for, I don't know, $12 a week or something, and you'd get fantastic roast meals and all of that was brilliant so i stayed there then i went to brisbane and again got my own way to brisbane with maine with maine and i the the situation was i think i got a i i I must have paid my own way to adelaide and then frank house the stage manager drove me from adelaide to brisbane and then we got to Brisbane, and they wouldn't give me a job because they said it was all it's a union theatre, and so therefore this was my distaste for unions started. I think. Right.
0: Um, did your mum last very long? Did she live to? Yeah, yeah, she lived to, to well day. well
1: into her 80s. She died in ninety nine. Right. So she saw the success. Great. That I had. Um,
0: and do you still think about your dad?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, now, now, you know, when you think nineteen sixty six to nineteen, what are we now? Two thousand twenty. It's. A
0: lifetime away you've got photographs of him yeah, yeah, yeah you can start yeah. to see yourself looking like him yeah a little bit
1: yeah but he you know that it, it's a different world but not you know well i don't want to say i'm not close to my family i'm very close to my family but all i've got now is really a brother and a sister left right, yes um and they visit me my brother does my sister i haven't seen since. and that's a shared history yeah 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 yeah. Which yeah, we yeah. But you remember not with other people. No, but mm. but also, you know, when I left home at 15, I left Adelaide and they've always lived in Adelaide. So I haven't my life since 15 has been the world. Do you think not
0: Adelaide. You found a surrogate family in theatre people?
1: Totally. Yeah. Without a doubt, and I think a lot of people do. Yeah. And I think in this office here, you know, we have 12 employees here. They're all freaks which is great, which I encourage. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Yes. The freakier you are, you're more likely to work for GFO. Uh,
0: so. MAME, because of sentimental value, or mm. even because it's just mm. such a great show, mm. have you thought of restaging a yeah, production of totally. MAME? Yeah, totally. I think the world has.
1: Yeah, yeah, the problem is it's the leading lady. We just don't have those people. I don't believe we have... I, don't, I can't think of anybody that I'd pay $160 to really go and see it do in Australia, an Australian do it. I can't. Don't get excited with anyone here
0: about... So you'd, you'd import someone? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Is that the wise thing to do? Totally. Considering um, yeah, because the uh, reactions that you've had probably all through your career?
1: Yeah, because I believe our industry should be an inter- an international industry. And I think that if I wanted to work in America or I wanted to work in England or wherever or in Australia, I should be allowed to do it. And I think that... Uh, the way the entertainment industry is now with music certainly film enough people and certainly the theater now there's enough people working overseas it's minuscule with what we bring in here compared to the the australians that are making a career in america not necessarily on broadway but you know regionally all of that Mm. um and and certainly in the uk i think if anything there's an imbalance but I haven't got the figures in front of me, so that's okay. a probably sweeping statement. But I think that, you know, if you want to work in America, you can now.
0: Tell me about Booker Mormon, because you copped a lot of flack on getting those two leads out to start the show. Mm. Uh, mm. Is that a case of you were contractually obliged by the Americans to to use those boys, no, or no. you just couldn't find them? No,
1: in no, no. We can honestly say, and this is becoming a problem even more and more now, is that when the when you do these shows, or even if, even if it's not coming in from America, at the end of the day, the buck's got to stop with the producer, but the producer has to have respect for his director and his creative team. You know, the, so the director, the designers, the lighting, whatever. So you're employing them to do a job. So therefore you, um, you want to go down that road. And they, they they if they come over here and they've already worked on the show in America or in England and that they know the show a lot better than me. I maybe I've seen it four times in New York. Just say, I still don't know the ins and outs of the show, whatever show. So the creative team come over here and they sit there and they we try to show them you know the best of everybody, um, and they go, well we can't cast that role, or those two people don't fit into what we expect so therefore as a producer you can say well look you know can't we just give it another yeah okay we'll do another round or we'll you know when you go back we'll send some videotapes over of people that we that will get to a point in but inevitably if they come back and they say it's not going to work and that's happened several times on different shows and that you know I will go right I've got to think of what's good for the show not what's good for the actor the actors. It's about what's good for that show that I've just spent ten million dollars on or about to spend ten well, million dollars. Well that's on. the other thing, it's a huge mm. investment yeah, financially that's right. for yeah, you, isn't yeah, it? So yeah, you've yeah. got to be And in inevitably assured. It's
0: it's not about stars. Sometimes it is, but Well, Pedro Hara and South Pacific. Yeah, I mean she'd really yeah. only voice the the voice of Balan, Beauty and the Beast.
1: Yes, but going back Mind on Mind
0: you, she was pretty terrific. Yeah, I thought she was good too. Yeah. But
1: the uh, the thing is that going back on that, we we we'd asked certain Australians to do that show and they turned us down. They didn't want to do it. There's big star Australians
0: that were because right. Because I right assumed they right. thought it was old hat. Rogers and Hammerstein at that point. It, that they, Rogers and Hammerstein yeah, wasn't sexy. At they the time.
1: they they may have. They may have. I didn't go into that. But they, you know, even to the the King and I. Haley Mills. Haley Mills. That show was an Australian director, two Australian directors, three Australian directors were asked to do it and they all turned it down. And so I eventually got an English director to direct it, Christopher Renshaw, that came out and eventually did five shows for me and is going to do another one in 12 months' time, I think. Um, and same with uh, with um, the casting of Haley. We asked... That, 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 that role, that Mrs. Anna was originally, uh, uh, Deb, Debbie Byrne was asked to do it. She turned it down and John Bell was going to be the king and he turned it down. And so therefore I thought, fine, I'll import. South Pacific, I can't remember. Because Emile de Beck was also- He was an import imported. and the Bloody Mary was an import, the oh. three. And i think that by that time we that's right i wanted it to be authentic and i wanted the bloody mary to be of some sort of color right you can't pull an engine. yeah you can't black yeah. up that role anymore you know that was certainly ros ryan who was an afro-american uh, actress who was not right she was fantastic in the role but you know color-wise she was not the right well, national no no and then we had a real frenchman playing emile de beck and we had an american playing that role but that production was looking back now was probably sexless and not a lot of danger
0: between the two leads there seemed to be a lot of denim and baby oil on the, uh, the there, male chorus There side. was, there was. <laughs> I remember it.
1: I saw pictures of it again the other day. Um, but uh, then we went on to Hello Dolly in, during that period and we had Jill Perryman and uh, Warren, Mitchell. Warren Mitchell. And then Warren only did in Melbourne, I think. And then Ron Hedrick took it over. It was mm-hmm. terrific.
0: What about um, recently with My Fair Lady? Yes. A couple of Englishmen. Yes. Um, did you look at Australian actors? Uh
1: Briefly, um, I think it was always in my head that I wanted an English actor for it. And I we, uh, it was originally offered to a big big Australian star here. Well, it was offered to Anthony Waller and Julie met with him and we all thought it was a good idea and then Anthony changed his mind. And then we offered it, we went through the Ellis, we went through the Richard Roxboroughs, we went through all those sort of top Australian Jeffrey Rush, I believe. Well, that was the rumor. No, Jeffrey Rush was never. Kelsey Grammer, I heard that too. Uh, Kelsey Grammer's name was up there. You're yeah. right, um, but that never got passed. I, I think we phoned his agent, and the agent was being too difficult, so we said forget that. Yeah. Um, uh, and then it really came down to it was a friend of Julie's um, that suggested um, Alex. Alex, yeah. and. Funnily enough, I went home that night and was watching something on the ABC and he was on it. And then everything I watched on the ABC over the next month, he was in it because he, he well, he's one of those actors that is never out of work. With serendipity. It's yeah, like that's right. To be. It's somebody, yeah. the
0: universe telling you yeah. this yeah. is the man. Yeah,
1: he's right. And then, you know, of course, he did that wonderful movie with uh, Maggie Smith where he plays... Um, Lady in the Van. Yeah,
0: Lady in the Van. Alan Bennett.
1: Yeah. So he came over and he was a, a complete joy to work with. Mm. And we had some pretty, you know, we had Robin Nevin in that company, and we had Reg Livermore, and they're very, you know, they're very proudly waved the Australian flag, and to this day, they're still in touch with Alex. They're great mates, mm.
0: all of them. You know, it's a very tight company that company. Um, yeah. Um. Thank you for addressing that because mm. I'm sure listeners would say, ask him about the imports, uh, mm. which I have now, and you've mm. you've mm. had a chance to address mm. that. So mm. so great. So um, dresser, your assistant wardrobe manager, you're working your way up. Up the ladder, up up the ladder. Consciously or are you just falling into that position? By then
1: I've got, I know where I'm going. Right. And I always knew in my life, regardless of show business, that there's, as that song from Sweet Charity goes, there's got to be something better than this. You know, dream your dream. That's right. And I always was, I'm very competitive, you know, very competitive. And um, there was always a path there that I knew how long I should stay in a job for. Invariably, now
0: are you seeking advice from anyone? You gonna you soon. No, no, soul, no, no. no this is thing? all me. No, You're all preserving.
1: me. Yeah, I always knew. And I could never understand school friends. You know, where kids would say, "Oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor, or I'm going to be a truck driver, or I'm going to be drive a train, or whatever." I always knew. I knew it would be in the entertainment field, but I didn't know what. I didn't know if I was going to be a performer or whatever. But when I got onto the thing of this producer thing, this is where I've got to get to, you know, but at first I've got to be a stage manager, I've got to be a company manager, I've got to work for a, a theater, you know, and I've got to, this was all in the plan, the ladder. So we're still pretty low down, but I've got to tell you one story that we'll come back and talk about in a minute. When I was doing Mame. And it was about the rules of the theatre. And this is one thing Sue Natris and Frank Howe taught me, was that you, you never sit on props. you never If you're an actor, you never sit in your costume. Or eat in your costume. Or eat in your costume, mm-hmm. you'd know that. And you never run backstage. For one reason or another, whatever happened, this one night I must have been super relaxed talking to somebody in the wings. And I, I nearly missed a quick change cue, which was on the OP side. And I remember running from the prompt side to the OP side behind a psych. And Gay Byrne, who was singing uh, If You Walked Into My Life, which is a beautiful ballad from me, all through that song you could hear clump, 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 and the psych going, like waving in the wind, and she's got her big eleven o'clock number, like doing it. So then I get my butt kicked, like you wouldn't believe, and I'm told to go to Miss Byrne's room, dressing room at the end of the show, and apologise. So now I'd never spoken to Gaily Byrne in my life, but you know this is probably my third or fourth week being a dresser backstage in a real theatre, and so I, at the end of the show, I timidly knocked on her door. Yes, oh, Miss Byrne, it's John Frost I'm on one of the dr dress- Come in. So I go in there and I said, I'd just like to, and she was sitting at the mirror with her short hair and in her last costume or the jacket was off and the dresser was standing in the corner, her personal dresser. And I said, I'd just like to apologize. She said, well, you won't do it again, will you? I said, no, Miss Byrne. She said, well, this t- just take heed. And this is one of the first lessons in the theater. Don't run backstage. I said, Thank you, Mr. and left the room. So that was fine. So left of that. So can I zip forward forty years? And I take a production to Her Majesty's Theatre in Adelaide, like forty years later, maybe fifty years later, forty years, and it stars Angela Lansbury. Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. And I go backstage and all the, and I hadn't been in that theatre for years and all the ghosts come back. And, oh, my God, I go to dressing room run to knock on the door. With Miss Lansbury. And Angela, and knock on the door, hello. I said, oh, it's John, Angie. Uh, and I go in and there she is sitting there in that same seat, well, not the same seat, but in the seat facing the same mirror that Gailey Byrne was sitting at. I couldn't believe it it was like this is so freaky and for your listeners that don't know of course Angela Lansbury was the original mame on Broadway and when they did it in Australia the one I was involved with it was a replica production so it was really quite wonderful but freaky for me to see Angela sitting in that same seat that Gailey Burnett sat in 40 odd years ago and me knocking at the door <laughs> at 15 and
0: now I'm whatever it was. Anyway, benefits. I loved it. Um, those lessons, you know, you only have to make one mistake and you never ever forget it. Um. No. Ideal husband again. Yeah, you, you probably got a stage report, so you probably heard about yeah. this. I was in the dressing room and, and mobiles would just I just got a mobile yeah and yeah, you know, yeah. I was obsessed with my mm. mobile. I get a knock on the door from the stage management. You're on! I was supposed to deliver um teacups at this right, tea party yeah, yeah, yeah. for Googie, yeah. Withers, Stephanie Beacham, and Josephine Burns. Yep. Yeah. But I was late. So hmm. fortunately, Tony Cogan, who was the butler, yes. stepped in and delivered did the it, first part. It. And then I arrived and did what I had to do. And I was shaking. And <laughs> yeah, no, I terrible. thought, God, I've got to have to apologise to yeah, these women Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Because
1: it's like the end of the world,
0: isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And we were going to hmm? Googie's, Googie's hmm. dressing room. Oh, hello, Googie. Um, I need to apologise for... Oh, that's all right. Darling, I love it when things go wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when things go wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Fantastic! Uh, yeah, yeah. But just you know, wonderful stuff. So,
1: where were we up to?
0: Your um, your um, ascension to yeah. uh, to be a to be a producer. So, we, do, do, do you work in Hello Dolly? Because I mean, you talk about the ghosts of theatres. I remember there was a gag you used to do about Carol Cook.
1: No, it was Roland Roccielli right. and I were in Wellington, New Zealand, and we're touring with a, a play called Sleuth, which starred uh, British movie star Richard Todd and an actor called Gary Waldhorn, who went on to do some, what is it? The D- D- Dimbley thing, you know? The the, Vicar of Dimbley. Vicar Vic, Vic of Dimbley, yeah, yeah. He played the bald head fella in that. That was her sort of mate in that. Anyway, we are in New Zealand and we were bored and that. And I was unpacking Richard, Richard's costumes, Richard Todd's costumes, and he, uh, he had beautiful Savile Row suits that he bought out that for the character that he played in that, and he had these beautiful brogue shoes. And inside the shoes, you thought I would have known, uh, there were these pieces of wood. And I, did, I thought they were just sort of like stuffing, you know. <laughs> so I threw them away. Oh, no. And then I was. He said to me, "Where are my lifts?" And I said, "Your, your, your lifts," because he was a short man, short in stature. And <laughs> So i went to Roland. and i said he's asking for some lifts he said well yeah he wears lifts where are they i said "Well, what do they look like and he said well they should be molded i said yeah yeah i know where they are he said well where are they i said i threw them out i thought they were just so that was like and yes you know lifts are custom made and they cost a fortune Mm. very expensive so that didn't start off very well but anyway we had this gag going that Hello Dolly, after it did its Australian tour, went to New Zealand, which I think it did. I don't know if it played Wellington. And there was a, a sort of a door backstage at uh, the opera house, the Grand Opera House it was called in Wellington. That sort of went nowhere, but it was always sort of locked up in that. And I was trying to f- find out what was behind it. And Roland said, "Who's? Wh- what are you doing? I said, oh, I think Carol Cook's in here. <laughs> and they locked her in here at the end of, JC Williamson's Hello Dolly tour in 1967. So I'd do this silly gag where I'd do the voice of Carol Cook being locked in this closet at the Grand Opera House in Wellington, New Zealand. That's where her career finished. Anyway, bit of in... No, Roland thought it was funny. It was. I thought it was hysterical. I, it, hysterical. It, now,
0: Roland, I did an episode with recently, yeah. and he tells me that he gave you one of your first jobs as stage manager yeah, on he Winnie did. the
1: Pooh. He did. He yeah. did. We. He, that's right. He was the stage director, and I was the ASM, or stage manager, on Winnie the Pooh, the pantomime. And when we did that production on top of the hair set at the Metro Theatre in Melbourne, uh, which was the Palace Theatre, which is now that dilapidated. Um, just around the corner from the Princess, here at the top of Burke Street, dilapidated uh, rock venue. Anyway, yeah, I did, and then I went and worked. Forum. I worked with it again, I think. Oh, on Kingfisher with Gogi and John in 1978. And well, Frank three. And Frank three. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
0: so, um, yeah, um, you're um, working with. I mean, I think that was with Harry and Miller. It was, yeah, yeah. But you're working with Harry M., you're working with Ken Brodziak, Mm -hmm. you're working with Malcolm C. Cook, Mm -hmm. producers of Note at the time. Yeah, yeah. What are you learning from working with those men?
1: Well, I think somebody once said to me, the best thing you could do is just shut up and don't say anything. Just listen. And that's fantastic advice. I know it sounds old-fashioned, but really, in the early, early days, even back in the days of Mame at the age of 16 17 i was so nervous about being around adults and older people and that but i was transfixed at what they had to say and it was that thing of just shutting up and and i learned a lot of not how to do things by just observing and and being i suppose street a bit learning to be street smart
0: so with Brodziak, you were a, um, an w- office boy? Yeah,
1: like? I was an office boy with Ken Brodziak at Aztec so Service. Running well, messages
0: and... Yeah, what it was, it was, it was,
1: well, it was really interesting because I used to do um, this. So we're in the early 70s now. I'd done Canterbury Tales as a wardrobe master. I toured with Emily Williams, the great uh, playwright, with his one-man Charles Dickens show. I did Barry Humphreys. Anyways, a whole, whole lot of things I'd, I'd worked on. And then I got this job for Harry M. Miller in Melbourne at the Playbox Theatre. And I was an usher and I was tearing tickets on the show at night and we were doing Butterflies Are Free with Miriam Carlin and a few other things. And at the during the day, I was an usher down at the Metro Theatre because Harry at night had hair on. And during the day, he showed the movie of this Russian version of Swan Lake and it was this i don't know the kirov ballet so you couldn't get a ticket for love of money for for the kirov movies we did three a day and then at night they'd fly the screen out and then do hair on the stage it was fascinating you know talk about utilizing a space one extreme to go yeah yeah totally anyway so i was sort of usher on that and then gary van egmon who was my boss who was harry m miller's general manager said look ken bradziak wants an office boy three days a week do you want to do it and you know take you off the floor instead of ushering and do that and I said yeah that'd be great so I went down there and it was Malcolm Cook it was a publicist called Eileen O'Shea and it was Mr Broziak and Mr Broziak's assistant called Lurl Frooms and the stories I could tell you from that office will go on for another six hours but they were so funny you know Lurl who was probably I didn't know much about her background but she probably then those days was in her 40s had very straight hair spoke in a monotone voice and she'd say hello lovey how are you and I'd go oh good Miss Frooms. call me Lurl and I say oh is Mr Brodgett yes KB she'd call him KB KB's in today and he'll be with you shortly and he wants to show you around the office. And I go, okay, fine. So anyway, so I'm sitting out front at reception that Mr Brodziak comes in because everyone had to call each other, Mr Brodziak, Mr Cook or Mr Ginn, Robert Ginn, or whatever, it was always Mr and Miss Frooms. It was no, you know, casual names, Miss O'Shea. And above Ken's office, he had outside his office, he had a red light. And if the lo- red light was on, you weren't allowed to go in because it meant he was negotiating a deal, right? So no one was allowed to go in. But that then everybody had, uh, he had this very archaic uh, system of um, buzzers. So Miss Froome's was one buzz, Mr. Cook was two buzzes. Let's say I was three buzzers and Miss O'Shea was four buzzers. So if you heard, bzz, 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 one, two... That's me. <laughs> you go... You rush in to the office. But you got to make sure the red light's not on. Because even if you buzz in, the red light's are you're not allowed to go in. So nervous Nellie me, like I'd be going... You know, the buzzer would be going... Bzz, 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 bzz. You know, all the time. One, two, three, four. Oh, that's Miss, that's Miss O'Shea. It's okay. So at times he went in. There was one occasion where I'd been there maybe six months and he, he buzzed me. And he said... Uh, I went in and I said, yes, Mr Brodziak. He said, now... He said... I believe it's your birthday on Friday, is that correct? I said, that's right, Mr. Brods, yeah. How old are you? I said, oh, I'd be 19. Look, all 19, that's very young. I said, that's right, Mr. Brodzier. Yeah. And he said, and your mother's coming over, is that true, from Adelaide? <laughs> so he'd got all this from Lurl Frooms, because I'd go yada, yada, yada yep. to Lurl. And so she had told him. He said, well, good. He said, does your mother know who Dame Anna Nagel is? And I go, well, yes, Mr. Brodiac. He said, well, look, I'm going to give you two free tickets for your birthday to take your mother to see Dame Anna Nagel and Derek Nimmo and Johnny Farnham in Charlie Girl at Her Majesty's Theatre start to two o'clock the matinee. So he'd speak like it was a TV ad or a radio ad, right? So I go, oh, that's really wonderful. Come and see me on Friday and I'll give you the tickets. Okay, thank you comes friday you know race into the office. doesn't mention anything about the tickets and i'm thinking oh mum arrives this afternoon and i've got the tickets for tomorrow you know that was a big deal charlie girl so anyway eventually i go in it's like five o'clock he says those tickets i gave you it's too late you can't have them because it's a full house tomorrow i've sold them that was it Took him back. <laughs> oh, didn't even take him back. I didn't get him. So she never get to, got to see, got to Charlie, didn't get to see Charlie. You're sold out. Fantastic. So he'd do that. And then he'd do one, another story. He'd say, he'd come out to my little desk. My job was to get the stamps, you know, put the postage stamps on the letters. So all the letters, typewritten letters were put into the envelopes and then let me, and I had to put the stamps on them and I had taken to the post box. And he'd come out and he'd say, how many letters are taking to the post box?" And I'd go, oh, it's all these, Mr. Brother. Well, how many are there? And I'd go, oh, it's 20, 23. Right, oh, 23. And I think stamps were like five cents in those days. So he'd go, he said, now, we've got to cut down on the stamps. And I'd go, oh, what do you mean? He said, has Miss Frooms told you how we protect and look after our stamps here? And I said, no. He went... Oh right, I'll give you a tip. Go and get it go into the kitchen and get a saucer of water. And I'd go, okay. So I'd go into the kitchen and got a saucer of water, come back. And then he says, Now get me some old envelopes with stamps on them. He said, Right, what you do is you go and so he tear the the envelope corner off, right? He said, Now you get that and just check that the black mark isn't too far on the stamp. That's the, the you know stamp, the stamp yeah. seal, yeah. And then you put that in the water and leave it there overnight. I go, oh yes, Mr. Brods, yeah. And then the stamp will come off very easily. And then the next day when you post it, he said, you can use it again. <laughs> you just make sure there's not too many, and get a bit of clad glue and put on the back. It's <laughs> true, true. Then he said to me once, so that's how we did that. Then he said, um, I need you to go and do some errands for me. And he was a big gambler, and he had this bookmaker, bookie, in in the city. And he'd say, "Now I want you to go down to pick up the returns, which were leftover tickets for that day's performance of Charlie Girl." And I had to physically go to Myers on the seventh floor, um, Hotel Australia about four places, and I had to go and collect these leftover tickets that would go on, be door sales that night and take them down to the JCW booking hall at Her Majesty's. And he'd have, he'd say, get me my um, petty cash box. So I'd go out and I'd bring in this rattly tin like money box, you know, those sort of old cash boxes. And he'd open his drawer and he'd go click, 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 and find the key, this rusty old key, put it in there and then that would be full of cash right and then there would be a, a key right and now the key was in his drawer that's right and then you'd open this cash box and all this stuff it'd come out and then you'd come out with a coupon and the coupon you can probably still buy them um when you get on the tram each stop you've got to get it, the conductor used to put a hole in it. So yeah. no different to when you go to your favourite coffee shop and no, they get one yeah. of those things. So you coupon and he'd go, right. He said, now you've got to go there. You can walk that bit. You have to get a tram there. Okay. He says, okay. And then he'd count one, two, three, four, how many holes had been punched. And so I'd do my errands, drop his money off with an envelope, which I don't know, a couple of hundred bucks in it in those days, and drop that off at this funny little office up stairs wherever to his bookmaker and then i'd go back and he'd get, take the card off me and go one, two, three, four, five, six. there's an extra hole been punched <coughs> what do you need the extra hole well mr bronziag it was raining oh <laughs> so i got got into trouble for taking the tram from one point to the other but he was really sort of I think he liked playing mean. I don't think right. he was mean. I think he was he was an eccentric, but loved to have the image of being, you know, tough and, and all that. But he was a wonderful, wonderful character. And I remember when he died, just before he died, I had revived a production of The Sound of Music with um, Lisa McCune. And there was an article, and it said, you know, Ken Bransyac, Died at the age of 86 or whatever he was. I was at one of his last uh, meetings I had with him, meaning whoever was doing the interview, said, M- Are you scared of dying? And he said, Oh, God, no. He said, I can't wait. I'm paraphrasing all this. Yes, yes. Um, I, 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 I look forward to it because the thought of having to sit through another revival of the sound of music would send me crazy. So and <laughs> I thought, well, That's my production. <laughs> So
0: One last he didn't deep. care. Yeah, yeah, he didn't care. No, that's hysterical. Mm. Um, tell me about that infamous production of Applause that you worked
1: on. Yeah, I worked. No. on... I was only an usher on that. Yeah, you that was something. Yeah, with, with yeah, Eve Arden yeah. and, and um, Judy Canelli. Judy Canelli, and that was at the Metro Theatre in Sydney, and it was directed by these two gay gentlemen that were obviously in love with show business, but didn't have the money, or they conned people into thinking. They had the money to do it. And she came out, and I remember sitting through the opening night, and scenery was crashing into each other and all of that. But the performances were fantastic. It was Ron Challoner It was, oh, God, it was Judy Canelli playing Eve and Eve Arton. Um, and I think it only ran like three or four performances, and then she paid everybody. The company out. Their company the company out, the, the you know, the to keep it. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But it was, you know, applause needs a big, big lady, you know, to pull that show off. And she did extremely well. And it was really the start of Judy Cannelli's career in a way, yeah. that show. Yeah. How did you meet Ashley Gordon? I met Ashley, Jill Perryman introduced me to Ashley. And Ashley, I was the stage manager of a play called The Kingfisher, with Googie Withers and John McCallum, and I, we were at the Comedy Theatre. So it was 1978, around October, September, October. And Annie, the musical, was playing at Her Majesty's Theatre. And I was over at the stage door, picking up the mail from Her Majesty's to take to the comedy, because that's where all the mail used to sit, in uh, in the stage door. And I, as I went in, the matinee was coming out, was out and Jill Perryman came out the door and she had just finished playing Miss Hannigan and that. And I'd known her by then, I must have. And she said, oh, darling, you must meet somebody. And she introduced me to Ashley at the stage door.
0: So he was just a fan of her? No, sure. no,
1: he was working at the comedy theatre for Ken Brozniak because Ken had moved his offices into... So Ashley sort of picked up my job. And... Um, <laughs> and... Um, he sort of doing a bit of everything. And there's a great story there where on the opening night of Annie, this is the JC Williamson Aztec Services production that Ken Brozek was involved in the programs arrived and the program cover, tell me if you know this, but the program cover was Annie. There was a big logo of Annie the word and the character, the cartoon character standing but behind it. With the dog in front of it, sort of thing. That was the image. On just it. leaning on, the yeah, tits, leaning on it. Correct, yeah. correct. So the program arrives for the first night, right, of Annie um, from Playbill, and for whatever reason, Mr. Brodziat goes over there and he says, "I want to see the program before you know." This is they had all arrived the programs, and for whatever reason, they didn't um, Annie's hair. The ink didn't take, and it was white. He said, I don't believe it. He said, you can't call this show Annie, we'd have to call it Granny. Because it looked like this little <laughs> old woman. Because So he said to Ashley, right, get over there. There's 2000 two programs. He called Ashley up, up to his office, bought out the, the cash deposit box. He
0: didn't have to color them in.
1: <laughs> he said, here's 15 cents, go across to Mr. Jones at the paper shop across the road and buy a yellow text color. And Ashley had to colour them in. And so and he, so first Ken shows him how to do it. Don't go over the line. And it's like, you know, a school lesson for, you know, a grown-up. Like how to, how to texture in. in the hair. And Thank if you're you. lucky enough, and Frank Van Stratton's probably got one somewhere. I know I've got one somewhere at home. You can actually see it was Ashley. It's the texture, And it was Ashley colouring in 2,000 programmes fantastic from Playbill
0: that Ken made him do it there's obviously a shared passion for theatre between the two of you yes did, did you hit it off straight
1: away yeah no we did and we, we that's when it we it, he came to we used to talk a lot and I'd say oh look you, you know that's right I think Ken was winding down and ba- basically Ashley was thinking about coming to Sydney and I said well you should come into Sydney I've got a spare bedroom come and stay at my place until you find a place anyway he does that the first thing he gets is it's the publicising the return of the America's Cup you know the, was it Challenger I can't remember what the ship was called the sailing boat now Australia the, 2 Australia 2 yeah 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 so it's a, it's on display around the country and um, Ashley did that. Ashley was a very good extremely good publicist um, and so he did that and so he publicized that so he you know made I don't know what he made maybe he made 10 grand out of it um and so he had that as a fallback on that so he became a sort of a freelance publicist for a few things then Camelot with Richard Harris came to town with Marina Pryor he did that this is while he was still staying at my place so then we used to talk about things and we talked about you know we could do this where was I working I must have been at the the Marion Street no I had been at the Marion Street Theatre running that for two or three years and then I went to Kinsella's and ran Kinsella's Nightclub for two or three years for Leon Fink see this is the extraordinary thing that people don't realise
0: the amount of work and And the variety of it and the variety that you've had
1: yeah yeah and so I did that Um, and so then Ashley came into my life and we did that and we talked about setting up a business and we, we I said well we we need to do um we should do a play. And so Ashley discovered the play, the gay play, Bent by Martin Sherman. Martin Sherman. Wonderful, wonderful play. Anyway, we booked the Seymour Centre, and it was going to happen. John Tasker, the Australian director, was going to direct it. I don't think we got down to casting it. We did all the investment documents, and I think then it was costing about $60,000 to put on. God. I found the budget just recently. Um,
0: I believe you used to pay a lot of stuff on credit card. Well, I get originally. to that. Because oh, right. we had no money. No, right. You know.
1: Um, and so we decided to do that. Then all of a sudden it became, they wanted to sign contract. And we had to pay a deposit of $5,000. We never had $5,000.
0: This is to the rights holders. Yeah, yeah
1: the rights holders and to the uh, theatre, you know, or something. The Seymour Centre. So I said, we need our own theatre. So anyway... Cut a long story short, um, he, we drop it or we put it on hold and he comes home one day and he says to me, have you heard of the Footbridge Theatre? I said, yeah, yeah, I think that's at the Sydney University, isn't it, or New South Wales? He said, no, Sydney. I said, I oh, forget it, it's a, you know, it's a lecture theatre. He said, no, it's not, it's got a fly tower, it's got... A... I said, no one ever goes there. Well, he said, know, yeah, no, 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 they do, they do films on Sunday night and they do the odd uni review there mid-year graduate uh, yeah mid-year reviews went oh okay so we then set up uh, let's go let's throw your job in at Kinsella's we can use the publicist publicity publicity gigs that you're doing as a a starting to put some money together I had five thousand dollars on my visa card or bank card or whatever it was called in those days and so we decided not to go with bent and so we get a lease on this theatre right so we negotiated a lease that was basically nothing it cost us maybe $700 I'm making it up but let's say it's $700 a week for the first five years and the view was after the first five years if we can't make a go of it we'll we don't deserve it anyway, but the deal was the rent would go up after five years or three years or okay. whatever. Were you
0: in partnership with Noel Ferrier? Then
1: no. we go. <laughs> then we go. We I I was in I I'd worked at the Elizabethan Theatre Trust and I got to know Noel really well and we had a great relationship. I just even miss him to this day. And you know, I said, "What do you think about the footbridge?" scene? he said, "Oh, he said, I think it's a wonderful idea." He said, "I tell you what." I'll give you $50,000 if you call it Ferrier's Footbridge. I said, great. I said, we could have a big neon out the front with you smoking a cigar and the smoke coming at He said, perfect, let's do that. So he got all carried away with it. Then, when it got com- then we get to, he said, but I don't want my name. He said, really, I don't want my name on it. You guys run it because I'm too old to do that. I'll just concentrate on my acting and whatever. So we took it, we signed the lease. So, no, we're about to sign the lease. And I say, oh, Noel, that 50K, can we, can you give it to us? And he said, oh, I haven't got it. (laughs) Because Noel was a bit of a gambler too. (laughs) So he was either full of it all or he he just didn't want to do it. But look, it, it didn't matter at the end of that. So Ashley said, who was always very careful, oh, we can't sign the contract, can't sign this, we haven't got the money. I said, how do you know that they don't know we haven't got the money? What do we need money for? We got enough friends to, to you know. I've got this friend there. She'll work behind the bar. That person will sell the tickets, whatever. And I think we had a booking. It was Graham Bonds' show was coming in, and Boys the, and Macbeth? Was yeah, yeah, or yeah one of Jack, or, yeah, one of those mm. things. And then, um, and then a play called Nineteen Eighty Four from the Adelaide Festival was coming over. Yes. Anyway, so it, and that was all guaranteed rent. So we had a cash flow about to happen. So he, I actually said, "You can't sign." I said, "Oh, bugger it!" I said, so I signed it. I don't care. I said, what are they going to do? Throw us in jail for and send the debt collectors.
0: So, the, so the, the, obviously, it was a yin and yang between the two of yeah, you. Yeah, Were yeah, yeah. You're both terrible risk takers.
1: I no, I was a great risk taker. I right. always have been. But he, 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 was, was, a, he a, was He was a, always a little careful. Yeah, you know. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. And he's the publicist he was the publicist and were co-directors of the Gordon Frost organization right. so and you're a, a marketeer what, what are the special skills that you're bringing to the relationship I have no
1: idea I right. just love being in you just show, love showbiz. so,
0: <laughs> so no, I don't know I probably had some skills
1: no I think I could you know I could talk the talk talk the talk there's yeah. a bit of a charm there yeah. you know so you know it was a good it was a good partnership um, and then it so we signed this thing and then we did you um, the first thing was a play called Night Mother with Jill Perryman and June Salter, a play about suicide. So I don't know if you know the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great a play. wonderful play. Yeah. So that was a great success, and we made we opened the show in Sydney with zero zero in the account of the Gordon Frost main account, and on the advance account, which was the advance bookings, was about seventeen thousand dollars, which we thought was fantastic. So the show plays five weeks; it makes seventy thousand dollars profit. We think, oh my God, this is easy. Why have I been you know, working at Kinsella's and Marion Street and putting up with all the rubbish? Anyway, so the next show we do is we get more adventurous. I go to New York and I see a, an agent called Bridget Ashenberg, and she introduces me to a play called Women Behind Bars, which is basically set in a wi- female prison with one male in it. And it's, it's a bit off the wall, it's really very off-Broadwayish, but I, it's one of the only scripts I've ever read where I've physically laughed out loud and I thought, oh we've got to do this, we've got to do this. So we did it and brought the American director over and at that stage, um, Ashley, I remember Ashley coming down with a very bad um, uh, shingles and all his face was sort of like, oh, terrible anyway so he meets the director and the director thinks oh my god who's It looks like the elephant man you know so this wonderful director called ron link anyway from there on we had everybody and their dog in it you know it was uh, maria venuti it was um, uh judy Canelli, june bronhill peter Peter mockery um Uh, now little nell little nell yeah yeah nell campbell was in it anyway everyone was in it and the opening night it went for um Oh, and I was an agent for a year, too, two years, for Bill Shanahan. All right. So, anyway, um, just throwing it just in. Just to know. Yeah, in the <laughs> days of Mel Gibson writer. and Judy, Judy Davis and Robin Nevin. Um, and so, which I didn't like
0: being. But anyway. An agent. Um, oh, I hate being we an agent. We can segue for a bit. Well, it's just dealing with making the deal. Oh, well, you do that now, don't you? I, I
1: try not to. I leave it to everybody that works for me. No. I try and not speak to agents. Okay. Yeah, they no. sort of, I, that's another story. Hangovers.
0: Mm. Um, but, but in Women Behind Bars, you've got June Bronhill in the in the mm. role that was made famous by Divine, yeah, a 120-kilo you know, drag, drag queen. queen. Yeah, yeah,
1: well, June had put on a bit of weight by then, so we thought that might work. <laughs> but she was tiny. Tiny, like a little... Popsicle. but also
0: having said that this woman who was you know the merry widow and, yeah that's right Mary she Buncher was that,
1: the heart of everyone dropping
0: death bombs and all over the place doing
1: well, that, for the but that was the most exciting thing about it was right. that we thought well you know june this will be good for your it's diversifying after all these years and she sort of felt the same but then it got to a point where she was getting hate mail for doing it yeah for doing it from all these people that want to see her do the merry widow or thought they were coming to see the merry widow uh, and she was doing Women Behind Bars, so um, she she sort of lost her confidence on it a bit, and we thought we would um, replace her. She never knew this, thank God. Um, and the show's selling six tickets a day, so it's it's a disaster after the opening night. So it's going downhill, and um, we decided to replace her quietly. So I tend to, I thought Reg Livermore would be perfect he'd been doing television for a while so i rang reg and i said oh reg would you entertain taking over from june bronhill in women behind bars and there was a pause and it sort of went on and on and on and he i said reg are you there he said i never thought i'd be asked to take over from june bronhill i'm so flattered does she know i said no he said right I don't think I could do that <laughs> so he didn't and it was just I think it was producer panic because we weren't selling tickets and on opening night we should have told me everything was that opening night it was no interval and I the first another lesson you always learn wonderful things in the theater the life lessons the first thing I did the minute the curtain came down I rushed out to the lobby and Bill Shanahan the the wonderful agent who I'd worked for I rushed up to Bill and I said Bill what do you think did you like it? He said, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. The only good thing for you about this is that the show doesn't have an interval because <laughs> no one would have come back for act two. And he was probably right. Probably right. You had a song written for it, didn't you? We did. Just for that production. Just for that production and your... we recorded it. And I've yeah. got the recording somewhere here and I think was we did it on the Mike Walsh show. I've, I've got it on Oh, Oh, you got it on video. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic, yeah. So I think we finished, the, put that in. That was all desperado time was like let's write a song they'll think it's a musical they mm. won't know and well, i think we did it at the curtain call yeah i think it ran about six weeks or whatever
0: fabulous It's fun of course that professional relationship succumbs to a grinding halt when ashley passes of aids mm. well that was really interesting because he had been
1: really sick or he was there was something not right and i didn't know what it was and um and it was that whole thing, it was that whole period when that first wave of AIDS went through Australia. That's in the late 80s. Yeah, yeah, late 80s, yeah. And he, I remember him saying, he, he rang me up once and he said, oh, I've had an accident. And I said, oh, this was a Sunday. And I said, well, what happened? He said, oh, I've fallen through the shower screen at home at his place. I said, right, are you all right? You cut? He said, no, no, I'm fine. But I said, so I gather it was a a bath situation and glass around or something. Anyway, he'd had an accident. And I said, I'll come over. He said, no, 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 no. And then he started getting rather maudlin and he'd been ill for diff, just looking to get a cold or he'd get something and that. And I'd, I've, you know, I said, you know, Ashley, um, at least you've got good friends around you, and um, he said, oh, "I don't have any friends." And I went, "Oh, okay." I thought maybe I might have been one at one stage, <laughs> and and I think this was all to do with how sick he was. And he he said, um, "I said, oh look, you know, life's a good thing." I just felt he wasn't suicidal, but it was like but it was obviously somebody, a- affecting his yeah, mental health. Yeah, yeah, and I said, "Well, you know." You've got to be, you know, we're both blessed. We're doing what we love doing and that. And you you must, re, you know, at least we're not like some of those poor buggers that are, you know, at St Vincent's, you know, dying with AIDS. And he said, as I feel it now. He was so cold about it. He said, yes, I am. That's what I've got. And that's how he told me. Over the phone. And it was like, oh, no, that's what I've got. I went, what? he said oh yeah no I've been diagnosed and then it was just a downhill battle from there onwards so the
0: physical change hadn't really happened yet no
1: and then it started really quickly after that actually and getting sick and pills and you know the preview night we did a matinee and an evening performance of Big River in Melbourne at Her Majesty's Theatre and we'd go to all the previews and I I said to somebody that was with me I said where's Ashley and they went oh don't know and we couldn't find him and then that night he turned up for the evening performance I said where have you, where have you been he, came out, he pulled me across and he said I've been to Sydney I've been to St Vincent's having a um, transfusion so it was like wow you know like, this is pretty bad and then he died um, probably about four months five months after that and it was pretty hair raising seeing someone die like that and with everything that in those days, that they couldn't do, you know, and with you know, going blind and all the stuff, all awful, awful, awful way, and and just to walk through that ward, ward set on the seventh floor, I think it was, to see young people and old people just waiting to go, you know, and the, it was just horrific.
0: You You must have been quite fearful yourself. Oh, very fearful. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it was like, whoa, this is like, I know I went through, I went through a point in my life during that whole scare where I just lost every bit of energy wanting, I didn't want to work. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to go out, you know, I'd come into work or I'd drink quite heavily at night and then wake up with a terrible hangover and then not get to work until two in the afternoon and then start it all again that was a you know it was just just a really it emotionally well, that's affected your, your grief period also. yeah yeah and,
0: yeah and you're losing uh, practitioners from the theater with the, uh, the theater industry lost a lot of pain. yeah
1: that's right oh yeah worldwide you know when you think of the the talent it lost and he was you know he was up there with you know i think that wave with richard Warett, and i think or richard was later yeah. Stuart calendar yeah and all those wonderful people yeah. um but it was a cruel way, you know, and we didn't know any, you know, medical research hadn't got to it. And the, the concoctions that they give you now, you know, it's remarkable and it's wonderful.
0: So. Did you question whether you could continue with the business? Yeah, I, totally. Whether the Frost organisation was going to continue? Totally. Because I thought I could do two things.
1: When he died, I thought. I could just sit and do nothing. I've got enough money. Well, we had enough money where I could just sit back because the theatre, the footbridge, had been booked for a year. So there was a cash flow, money coming in. So I knew I didn't have to produce anything. I could just wait and pan it out. Or I could just close it down now and I could get, a person could get a job. And I thought of this very seriously in a re, like a regional theatre. or That was well after the time when all those, 500, 600 seat theatres that opened in Wollongong. I thought, I could do that. I could run one of those Can things run. on my ear and have a great time. It'd be fantastic. You know, add a bit of show business to those places. Towns, yeah. yeah. that's right. So I thought I'd do that. So I thought that. Well, then eventually it didn't happen. And I thought, okay. And it was just like waking up one morning going, okay, it's showtime. You know what I mean? We're back. Let's do it. And then um, I had, we, we started on doing, well, when Ashley was alive, we did Jerry's Girls and we did Big River. So he died during Big River. Um, and so it was, okay, what are we doing next? So the next big project really after that was, I think, The um, the King and I, South Pacific and uh, Hello Dolly and Crazy For You.
0: So. A lot of people believe that there is a, a Gordon Frost. Yeah, they, they do. do. They, they... sometimes they get called well, Gordon. Well, when, when
1: or... people ring up here, you know, they ring up and they say, um, oh, is Gordon in, please? And they go, no, he's not. Uh, well, I spoke to Gordon the other night and Gordon said I could have two free tickets to go and see Shrek the musical. Well, good. But the man doesn't exist. So, you know, or people say, call me Gordon. So now and then, I just used to get snappy about it. I now just ignore it, don't worry.
0: You, you kept his name in the in
1: yeah, the, I have in because business. I think that you know, I, I'm I love tradition, and I love the thought of things going on. As I have huge respect for you know what the JC Williamson, the firm did, and all of that. And I would never compare myself to JC Williamson's, but but. You know i think gfo now as it's sort of called at times the gordon frost you know we've, we've been doing it for 40 odd years now and there's not there's no other outfit that's survived that long other than firms like jc williamson's or maybe Ken cambrosia you know people like that but we've been in it for the the long term and i like to think and i kept it also for his dad the name you know and fashley because I wouldn't have done it without actually going, come on, come on, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. So, you know, it's
0: it's there for as long as I suppose I continue doing it. And that's the first part of my conversation with John Frost. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? Much I did not know about Frosty's apprenticeship in the theatre and the tenacity to succeed the preparedness to trial any role and the eternal passion for an entertainment industry that has sustained him throughout a long career. Join me next time for the companion episode where John examines some of his triumphs and disasters. He describes the international success of The King and I and he recalls some of the amazing folk he has worked with and learned from. It's a terrific conversation and you won't want to miss the rest of this tale of Frosty the Showman. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Eyes. Catch you next time on Stages.